Thanks for pressing play. As you know, the electric vehicle category is a giant new mega category that is emerging right in front of our eyes, and it's completely changing the transportation landscape. Now, there's a company you may not have heard of called Rivion, and it's a startup who has yet to ship a single product, and yet somehow is pioneering a differentiated category of EVs. And they are on the verge of what will likely be a massive, multi-billion dollar initial public offering. Our guest today is Al Ramadan. And together, uh, he and I unpack all of it through a category design lens. You see, Al's been studying what they've been doing and blogging about Rivion lately. Uh, And there'll be a link in the show notes to, um, to what he's been writing. So I asked him to join me for an episode to unpack all of it. And that's exactly what we do through a category design lens. And if Al's name sounds familiar, that's because he and I co-founded a company together called Play Bigger Advisors. And we wrote a book together called, you guessed it, Play Bigger. And while I retired from the firm after the book came out, Al and I have have remained uh, collaborators and uh, we are brothers from another mother. And I'm over this over the top stoked to share uh, his legendary mind with you. Al's been a tech entrepreneur, CEO, investor and advisor for over 30 years. And of course, he's a best selling author. And today he's best known for being one of the godfathers of category design. My friends at Halo App are the world's first real relationship app. Check out H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P dot com today or search for Halo App in your app store of choice on your smartphone. And Category Pirates is the newsletter that is sort of like Harvard Business Review if it was written for and by pirates. Check out Lockhead.com and click on Newsletter for Category Pirates today. Now, hey-ho, let's go. This is Lockheed on Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. It sure is great to see you, Al. So great to see you, Christopher. Miss you. Miss you too. Uh, hopefully we'll be, uh, you want to go on a bike ride this weekend, maybe? That'd be great. That'd be awesome. Let's do it. Excellent. Now, Rivian, you've been studying the company and the founder and what implications it has for the broad EV category and the category they're trying to um, carve out for themselves. And of course, here we sit on the eve of their IPO. So why don't you tell me a little bit about the founder and the company? Yeah, founder is uh, a guy called RJ, and I think he's the best of combination of a Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. I really do. He's a remarkable entrepreneur. He has this huge vision we'll talk about in a sec. And a couple of weeks ago, they announced that they're going to do this IPO around Thanksgiving is when it's going to happen. And it's an IPO, not a SPAC. All of the other EV vehicles are going out with SPACs, as you you know. And... um, the 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 zinger was that the market cap was going to be eighty billion dollars, eighty billion dollars, bigger than GM, bigger than Ford, and 
bigger than Toyota. Toyota is the number one SUV provider in the world, as you know, and it's a $56 billion brand value is, is the way they value that stuff, the sort of the product line. So they're going out, haven't shipped a vehicle, and they're going out with an IPO value projected at $80 billion. Um, and it, it's, it just caught my attention. In addition to the fact that I love Rivian, as you know, I pre-ordered one and I, I can't wait to get my hands on one of these things. But it was just this moment in time where you look at this thing, it's like, what? They haven't shipped a vehicle and they're valued more than Toyota's entire SUV line and Ford or GM? It's, it's, it doesn't make, you know, you, immediately you look at it and say, that's, that's just crazy. Um, and so, you know, sort of the category designer in me sort of took over and I started dissecting the S1 and all of their filings and everything else. And I, I came up, I came up, you know, together with a few insights that I just, I just, I just think it's worth sharing and talking about and figured, you know, you'd be the best guy to talk about with this stuff. So happy to roll into any of that stuff with you. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, the, the thing that everybody says, or almost everybody says, particularly outside of Silicon Valley, when something like this happens, oh, a company that hasn't even shipped a product yet, has no revenue, is worth more than Ford. Well, the only reasonable explanation for that is weed is legal in California, right? And of course, what they miss always is what the real drivers of market cap are, which is, number one, What's the potential for this category? Number two, do we believe that this company can prosecute the magic triangle company, uh, product company and category and earn 76% of the economics? And number three, when we look at their numbers, metrics, financials, et cetera, are we comforted about the first two things? And if the answer to all of those is you've got a company who's designing a market category that right now looks like that has the potential of almost infinity. And it appears, even though they haven't shipped a product, that they're executing the magic triangle. Bada bing, bada boom. If you believe in the potential and you believe in their ability to execute the magic triangle, ta-da, they're worth more than Ford. But I'm curious as to your reaction. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely right. So that's one of the things that I've been thinking about is so on the on the category design side of that triangle, the magic triangle you're talking about, Christopher, I think. The thing that's worth noting is, you know, his point of view uh, is clearly stated on his website. And uh, I'd just love to uh, read a little bit of it to you because I think it'll speak to you. And this is this is in his words. So today we are we're operating off hundreds of millions of years of accumulated plant and animal based carbon. On our current path, we will fully exhaust this stored energy in only a few generations and in the process carbonize our atmosphere to such a degree that life as we know it will not be possible. If the planet is to continue to sustain life and enhance future generations, we have to change. To build the kind of future our kids and our kids' kids deserve, extraordinary steps must be taken to stop the carbonization of our atmosphere. This requires individuals and entire industries to come together in ways we never have before to transition the world towards sustainable energy. This is where Rivian's potential lies in creating solutions that shift consumer mindsets and inspire other companies to fundamentally change the way they operate. As staggering as this may sound and as complex as our objective is, 
We, are, we already have everything we need to create change. It starts with harnessing the very, the very thing every human being is born with, an adventurous spirit. There's a reason we're hardwired with curiosity and capacity to invent better ways of doing things. The part of us that seeks to explore the world is the secret to making sure it remains a world worth exploring forever. That, Christopher, is his POV. There's not one mention of a vehicle. It couldn't be further from an SUV pitch from Toyota or Ford. I mean, it is really a giant story that he's talking about. And it's a, and that, that right there is the whole point. He, he's designing the category around this existential threat to human nature and human beings and not, you know, I got a better carbon ingulator car. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And of course, if you keep going with this, you know, sort of, so what did he call his first set of products or the category that his first set of products are going to play in? Adventure vehicles, not SUVs, adventure vehicles. It's this concept of getting out into nature and engaging with nature. And it's the thing that ultimately will sustain us. And of course, the SUV itself, the product design of the SUV is unbelievable the r1t and the r1s as they're called uh one's a truck one's an suv um it's an electric vehicle 800 horsepower you'll love that zero to 60 2.5 seconds faster than a lamborghini think about that an suv going faster than lamborghini zero to 60 um and a whole bunch of other stuff that just make you cry (laughs) like just you know, laugh and cry and, and be excited. So the product design is absolutely phenomenal. And then you think about, okay, what else did he do On, to your point about the magic triangle? Well, the company design is absolutely superb. So what's the thing that most people hate about buying vehicles? Kind of everything. <laughs> yeah. It's the sales guy and the dealership, right? I mean, that yeah. is, that old stupid game is so stupid and sucky. So there are no dealerships. There are no sales guys. You buy online. You configure the whole thing online. It shows up as you configured it. Oh, and by the way, the service, it's done in your own home. There's no service place that you take it to. How do you test drive one? I mean, obviously they're not ready yet, but will you be able to test drive one? Or are they just saying, fuck it, you either got to throw down the 80 grand or whatever it is or, or, or not, and we'll give you a two-day money-back guarantee? Or how, how are they dealing with the, <laughs> the old, hey, do I actually like the way this thing fucking drives? <laughs> totally, totally, yeah. And, and they, they do, they, so they're having, as they're rolling these out. So the first actual, yesterday, the first vehicle came off the production line. And the plant, by the way, is in Normal, Illinois. That's the name of the town. And uh, it's in, in, in the middle of America. Like, I mean, it's so unbelievably good. The story is just like there's so many dimensions to it that, that make me really happy. And, yeah, they, get, they have these um, essentially a, a, a driving opportunity in different towns and cities around the world, excuse me, around the country as they're, as they're sort of rolling this thing out. You get in their car, you go for a burn, and you you bring it back just like you would with a dealership. But the, you know, it's the, there's no one saying you're going to buy this thing, you're going to buy this thing. Hey, let's haggle on price. And what about this? And you know, all that shit. None of that. It's like, and um, and if if you don't like it in the first thousand miles, you can give it back. Yeah, that that makes sense. The other thing is, you were sort of teeing all that up. Of course, I I was thinking about how uh, most uh, cars are marketed in the U.S. So we have uh, these dumb ads of 
guys driving SUVs, actually a lot of them along Highway 1 or up in, the, up in Tahoe. So, you know, you have these beautiful images, but they're all exactly the same. They're completely interchangeable. And then they all have stupid taglines and it's like, that's the end of it, right? So that's the sort of at the manufacturer level. But the thing I was really thinking about is at the dealer level. What, what is dealer at? What are dealer TV ads? Like, calm down this weekend. We will not be undersold. We're right on the price. And we got donuts and we got red ones and we got green ones and matching doorstops. And, and we will not be undersold. We just got a new shipment in here. Come on down. You know, and you know all of that stuff, right? And then it, it's the carnival barker bullshit that is a race to the bottom on margins because they're all competing on price and features. Um, everything you just said as it relates to Rivian is a little bit different. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Chris. You're you're right. And it it is different to any other, at least buying experience I've had. So the company side of this, how they distribute these products and the network they set up for charging and all that sort of stuff is just so different. And I think the most telling thing that's happened since we published an article about a week and a half ago, sort of forecasting some of the stuff that got a lot of airtime and people were like, you're justifying an $80 billion market cap for a company that hasn't, hasn't shipped the product. And I was like, absolutely, I am. I'm standing behind that. And uh, a guy, uh, so on Twitter, I'm not a Twitter user often, uh, but I did do some searching and so at the time their IPO was filed, one of the one of the uh, guys who follows those sorts of things is a guy called Sawyer Merritt, and he puts up a, a breaking news: Rivian Automotive has filed for an initial public offer and is seeking a roughly eighty billion dollar valuation. The company would like to do a, an IPO around November twenty five Thanksgiving. One of the first people to comment, get this, is a gentleman by the name of Elon Musk, and he says. Don't want to be unreasonable, but maybe they should be required to deliver at least one vehicle per billion dollars of valuation before the IPO. Christopher, you're a student of category design. When the category design, when the category king of a adjacent category, electronic vehicles, makes a comment like that, what does that mean to you? Uh, and I can explain why, but it means one thing and one thing only. He is afraid of those guys. Because, I mean, look, you and I both know this. There are certain rules about how you win in this game. And there are certain sort of human rules. Number one, you don't punch down, right? Nobody punches down. It's not cool, right? So he wouldn't be whacking them unless he thought he was an equal, which says a lot, because nobody, nobody at his level doesn't understand that you don't punch down. Um, and the other thing that is shocking, that he would have to know, but his compulsion to tweet overrode his logical brain. His monkey brain must have got his logical brain. Because, look, I don't know Elon Musk, but he is smart enough to understand that when you are the category king, you don't acknowledge the others, you let them come after you. When you're the heavyweight champion in the world, people call you out. You don't call anyone else out. And he broke all those rules, um, which means that in a, in a moment of uh, emotion, he publicly expressed real concern. That, that's how I interpret it. Yeah, no, you said it better than I could have, as usual. And that's exactly how I interpret it as well. He's scared. He's scared. And if you were the, if you were the manufacturer or the creator of this thing called the Cybertruck, you ought to be scared. That thing is dumb. Everyone who's looked at it, it's like, that doesn't make any sense. So at a product level, it doesn't make any sense. And then, but beyond that, 
his art, his being Ajay's articulation of the problem we're trying to solve here, which is the existential threat to human nature, and the fact that um, the adventurous side of us and our connection to nature is actually the thing that's going to solve us, is so unbelievably powerful and so unbelievably different, and that's scary too. And 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 just one other thing, because as you start to dig into this, it's like, well, okay, how come he's got so much moxie? Like, why why would Elon be reacting to a guy who's got no vehicles in the market and an eight, and a so called eighty billion dollar market cap ahead of him? You dig under the covers, it's like, guess who one of the biggest investors are? Amazon. Every and am I, Amazon. Am I remembering truck. this right? That Amazon. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, every Amazon truck, Christopher, those delivery vehicles that drop off all of those packages are going to be built by Rivian and are going to be electric. And they've ordered 20,000 of them up front and put the money down already. It's stunning. And the other thing that's stunning is, uh, of course, uh, Elon starts with cars. And I just looked at it. Uh, according to Forbes, Jan 7, 2021, trucks, pickups, SUVs and crossovers, so non-cars purchased by consumers, are now 76% of the U.S. market in 2020. There it is right there. And, and, and somehow, Elon, who's, of course, no fucking dummy, is building cars. That is, that is the mother load. That is the other scary point that I was going to mention, which is to your three-quarters of the true... Uh, profitability and value associated with the m automotive industry comes from those segments that you talked about. And here's a guy just rolling into town, redefining those segments in a way that is really, really, really terrifying to them, but so inspiring to the consumers. Um, and that's why, that's why you see that kind of reaction from Milan. Um, and then there was another fascinating announcement just, just this week as well, Christopher, since we, since we published this article, um, which was, uh, Rivian announces a strategic partnership with the Nature Conservancy. Stop and think about that for a sec. A car company announces a strategic relationship with the most respected conservation company, you know, organization in the United States. The, what's it about? Well, you know, Nature Conservancy is, you know, they're driving all over these places and they've got to check out all of the lands that they protect and ranges and state parks and everything else. And guess what they're going to be driving? It's so priceless. Isn't it? Well, it's pure genius because he's going and getting the greenie of the greenies. Right. right? And so it, 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 you know, one of the things, of course, we talk about a lot in category design is this this concept of influence the influencers. You know, who are the people uh, who set the agenda? Um, and then Eddie calls them super consumers. You know, who are the who are the people who drive any category and and therefore are more receptive to change and innovation? And so, whichever vector you want to think about it, what he's doing here is clear: is he's endearing himself to that community which gives him a stamp of approval. It also, you know, I'll be very curious to see what he does with marketing over time, but um, the greatest marketing and Elon, and of course understands this was, is, and always will be word of mouth. And so 
what's the word of mouth around this POV that um, that um, RJ is creating? Yeah, uh, people are stoked. I mean, you can measure it on many different levels. If you just look at these, you know, the Rivian postings on Instagram, there's also a number of, you know, sort of Rivian watches on Instagram, all of which I subscribe to. They're all over this thing. Um, they're so fascinated by the idea that we could put our money where our mouth is uh, to really make a significant change to to our world and the world of our kids. Um, and not that Elon couldn't do that. And my son Lucas has got a Tesla and he loves it and he bought it because of the same thing. But the point about the mother load, which is, is that the, the really profitable parts of the automotive industry are now going to change. And that is, that's w- where he's headed. So there's a, there's a lot of buzz around it. I'd say the other thing, which is, um, I, as I said, we, we published this article and a number of my friends sort of immediately texted me and said, how do I get a, a Rivian vehicle? because they weren't aware that this thing even existed, right? I mean, that's how early it is, really. It's the, it's the you know, classic technology adoption lifecycle where the innovators and the, uh, the early adopters are the sort of the, the very tip of the spear. And I just, in this particular case, I just happened to be one. And Bitsa called me and said, I can't get on the pre-order. They've shut them down. I literally cannot get one. And so if you think about sort of the, what that does, it's the, it's, the, it's the velvet rope. It's like you can't even get in even if you wanted to, right? And that creates an, and that amplifies this whole notion of excitement and, and, and interest and intrigue about this organization. And uh, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. And what, what I would say on the other side of that is, okay, so again, to yes, I agree with your comment and I totally was stunned when I saw Elon make that comment because it does, I think, speak to his heart more than his head for sure. He is scared and he ought to be. And so are everybody else. And by the way, Ford's an investor in Rivian, if you didn't already know. So they've already sort of bet on, (laughs) on change. Um, But the, the, the thing I was, the the thing about the pre-orders is that, um, the line is so long and every time you every month essentially you get an update of what's available with the rivian and um so i think i've redefined my rivian five times so far as new options come out and so they have adventure option and they have the wheel option and they have the something else option and so that all creates buzz and everything else more speakers uh, please more speakers we need more speakers <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. Now it's not all roses, right? So the other side of this is is that um, they published a blueprint, as, as as you know, we call the definition of the solution that the category king imagines for the future. The blueprint. They they published one of those, and one of the things in the blueprint was this really cool idea called a tank turn. Never been never been talked about before. It was invented by them, and it's this idea, Christopher, that you can have a car, you can put your truck on a road and do a 180 inside your wheel space. So it just basically does like a tank does. It can do a 180, 360, 720, whatever you want in the same spot. It doesn't move. And it's so, it's so different and so compelling that people were like, you know, there's so much buzz around the tank, the Rivian tank turn. So they just came out recently and said, well, not so fast. We're not sure we can actually do it. We did it in the video, but we haven't got it. So 
they got a little bit of a black eye for that, for sure. Right. And it's like that's the risk that you take when you're the leader and you start publishing blueprints to say, OK, here are all the things you need to to be the king or the queen or the champ. So they got a little bit of a black eye from that. And again, to 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 um, the point about Elon, he's right. They haven't shipped a vehicle yet. You know, and so, you know, the production side of uh, the automotive industry, I, I can only imagine as being insanely complex. Remember doing a tour around BMW, you know, back in the America's Cup days, and just seeing the the the, the just in time manufacturing seats arriving just from the just as they're being put in the car and all that sort of stuff. So, he, I, I'm sure he's right too. I'm sure he's right. So, that is the risk side of the equation. No question. Can they deliver on the expectation? But at this point in time, I'm 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 putting my money where my mouth is. I, I really think these guys are on a roll. Fascinating. Also, just as a side note on the uh, tank turn thing. You know, with with the Elizabeth Holmes trial and th- uh, the, all, all the discussion about Theranos, I actually think there's it's it's going to uh, change some things in Silicon Valley. And I think one of the things that it's doing is it's crisping up how, when, and where entrepreneurs can be over their skis. Right. So a simple example would be uh, you can be over your skis about what you're promising in your product. You can be over your skis about what you believe is the potential for your category, but you can't be over your skis about what your product does now. And you can't be over your skis about last quarter's revenue or profitability or any backward looking financial metric, (laughs) right? Because she lied about all sorts of stuff. Anyway, what I, the reason I raise all that is. Um, on one hand, they took a risk by announcing a feature that they're now having a hard time delivering on. At the same time, you know, they they announced to the world pretty quickly, hey, wait a minute, we're, we're, we got over our skis. We're, we're still working on this. Maybe not film at 11. They didn't perpetuate the lie. Right. Right. No, that that's and that's the kind, that's the that's the entrepreneur that he is. That's why. I love him so much. And he's a great showman, just like, um, you know, Jobs was, which Elon's, you know, definitely got work to do on that side. And and that's why I really like a, his ability to sort of stand up and tell the story. And th- there was a really heartfelt um, posting from him about the first R1T that shipped off the production line yesterday. And, you know, he had his family and his kids there and everybody else. I mean, literally everyone's crying at this point in time. They'd been through a pandemic. They were sort of ready to go. And then the pandemic hit and the whole, you know, like you can just imagine the mess on the company side of this thing. Right. But I, I think it's such a great example of category design and, and why category design is so important in the context of the other two, the product and the company designs. And it shows you that he didn't go through a course. I'm not even sure he read Play Bigger. He may have, he may not have. I don't know. But he had this innate sense of being a category designer. And I think in our book, Christopher, that's one of the things we found was many of these great leaders didn't know it as such, but they practiced it. Well, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I think for some people, I mean, my favorite experience from a reader is when they say, I read Play Bigger and I finally had a way of describing what I've been trying to do. Right. That that I love it when intuitive, natural category designers read it and go, oh, fuck, that's what I'm doing and who I am. <laughs> right. Right, right. Anyway, that said, I think let, let, let me play skeptic with you here for a second, Alan. <laughs> OK, <Christine>. our, our, <laughs> we can't fuck <laughs> with each other. Well, okay. <laughs> but a skeptic would say to you and I, hey, listen, this is not 
He's not creating a new category. Actually, Elon Musk didn't even create the category of electronic vehicle, you dumb assholes. He's just coming out with a better product. And he's building a better brand. This, As a matter of fact, Alan, this love you have of Rivian proves everything you preach is completely wrong. So how would you respond? <laughs> I, 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 I love it. I love it. And I love the fact that you're poking at it. And uh, brand is derivative of category design. Said another way, unless you're clear about your category and unless you're clear about the problem you're solving, don't bother even starting with brand. It's not going to help you. Uh, because you have to have something you stand for, and the stand for is the problem, obviously. And the great category designers have been the ones who have been promoting the problem and then become evangelists for the problem. He didn't go out and say, I'm designing a new... If you read his point of view, and I read it to you, he didn't say, hey, I'm creating a better car. He didn't say that. In fact, he didn't even mention vehicle. He did mention that industries had to change. So there's a little bit of a hint there. But he never talked about any of that stuff. And so I think, and, and if you compare that to the brand ads you get for Honda or Toyota SUVs or whatever else, they're speaking to a completely different thing. It's like, oh, we got a new tailgate feature that you can actually sit in while you're having coffee. Like, really? That's like, that's the thing you're actually going to present? It's like so in the weeds and so down. And, and people get confused about sort of, the role that brand, I think the role that branding has in the development of an enterprise. And category design sets the North Star. Branding never has and never will. And so uh, it isn't a brand campaign. It isn't. It, you just, just read it. It is an absolutely classical category play with an incredible product design. Yet to be proven, we have to see it on the streets. We've got to buy it. We've got to drive it. We've all got to agree with it. But incredible product design at this point. And a new company model and a new company design that's so different to any other truck or large you know, SUV that you, you, it's like pizza and ice cream. You're looking at these two things like they're not even in the same place. Yeah, absolutely. Did I convince you? Uh, yes. And, and you know. <laughs> For for people who conflate category design and first mover advantage, which, of course, you shouldn't. But that said, he does have first mover advantage. He's got the first truck, the first EV truck. And with all due respect to Elon and everybody who owns one, whatever that fucking UFO thing driving around that they say is that the, the uh, Tesla SUV. Have you been in one of those things, by the way? I have not been in one of those things. We test drove one of those things. All I had to do was just get in it and sit in it. And, and, and I, I just screamed, I am not the customer of this. <laughs> anyway, it's not a fucking SUV. It's not one you want to go to Tahoe and blast around in 12 feet of snow in and right. off-road if you need to. And no, it's some weird Jetson fuck thing. I don't know. I, it's not uh, clearly I'm not the buyer. But anyway, the point being Rivian, by calling it an adventure vehicle, and by tying it into the outdoors and nature and greeny and, and of course it's an EV and like the whole thing, it's a completely different conversation and it, they're positioning it very differently than sort of this weird UFO soccer mom thing that Tesla's yeah. got. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then in addition to the, that, um, vehicle you're talking about, they have this sort of futuristic view of something called the Cybertruck. I don't know if you saw it, but 
it's this incredible. Of course I saw it. It looked like it was from the new Iron Man movie. It, but it looked like it looked like you and I took some metal and banged it together as exactly as we were like we were like costume designers for our kids play and we had to make a space look truck i don't know it was crazy looking no it is it is i know it was a prototype and everything and i just thought the most classic thing was oh well let me show you how bomb proof this is and they throw a soccer ball at the window and it breaks and you oh shit really live okay i mean just there's so much about that whole thing that just made me laugh and that's the other end of the spectrum is 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 where rivian are at and i'm just thrilled also that honestly that they're from illinois from normal illinois that's what I'm most thrilled about. This is the Midwest. This is the heartlands of the automotive industry. And this guy is setting roots there and he's doing the whole thing made in America and from, you know, the mother, the mother states for, uh, for automotive engineering. So I'm, I'm just thrilled. As you can tell, I'm super excited about the whole thing as an example of category design, great product design, great company design. And he's just, he's just a powerful guy. And um, I'm stoked to, to, stoked to have him in the industry. Well, and the other interesting thing, of course, we wanted to touch on is the way category designers IPO is very different than people who think of an IPO as a financing event. And it appears that he is purposely creating everything around the IPO, the S1, the the whole quote unquote story, the way legendary category designers do, which is he's presenting a vision, aka a POV, uh, about a problem. He's framing that problem. He's making that problem urgent and important. And he's saying we must move from the way it is to a whole other way. And he's doing it with his IPO. Most people make the mistake of thinking it's a financial event, just the facts, present the numbers, when in point of fact, the IPO is a legendary time to A, drive home your category design, and B, lock and load your position as the emerging category leader. Yeah. Yeah, no, you, you're absolutely right, Christopher. You know, and you know this as well as anybody. Um, you know, some of the most powerful strikes, lightning strikes of all time have been IPOs when they're done right, because it's a time when there is a lot of light shone on the company, on the product, and on the category. And the first thing that investors, the, the, in the old days, investors used to say, well, what's the TAM? You know, and you'd have to sit there and explain, well, it's this many companies or people times this much price. Therefore, this is the TAM of the, you know, and you'd have to justify all of that stuff. Uh, some people still do that. The really savvy investors don't. They actually look at a thing called category potential. What could this be? And that's, that's, that's the, the biggest change I think that's happened over the course of the last sort of five to 10 years is that, you know, our practice your practice, everybody's practice on category design has helped influence people to write S1s in a way that actually do present the potential. Clearly, they're going to have estimates of TAM and all that sort of stuff in there, but it really talks about the potential for what this could be that enables a savvy investor to sort of say, well, geez, you know what, this this, so if, if the, the entire SUV market and, and, and Toyota is 59 billion, I think number two is Honda and it might be 30 or something like that. So call it 150 billion. You know, you got to justify market share. They don't look at it like that anymore. Honestly, they don't. And my suspicion is, and you know how much time I spent in financial analyst school, that if they're targeting an IPO price of 80, they'll be oversubscribed. And so they might actually go out north of 80. We'll see. And regardless of where they go out, 
particularly once they can start uh, showing an ability to execute across the magic triangle and in particular deliver cars that work that people are excited about, that 80 might start looking very, very cheap. Um, there were a lot of people when Apple was at half a billion, half a trillion, 500 billion, who thought that was insane. And uh, man, don't you wish you'd backed up the truck? <laughs> I do. I do. I do. I actually remember Apple when it was uh, seven bucks a share. Um, and uh, I wish I had backed up the truck then. But I did want to speak to this issue of the IPO and sort of perception, because that's what in many cases IPOs are actually about, perception of what the opportunity truly is. And uh, we were working with a company, and I think we've talked about it many times before over over uh, Uncle Dave's uh, IPA, and it's a company called Qualtrics. And that company, at the time we started working with them, was valued at about a billion dollars. They were, you know, great market research tool and 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 product. And uh, we built a new category, or created or designed a new category called Experience Management, or XM, as it became known. And uh, SAP, ironically, because we roasted SAP in our book, is it came in and bought them at eight billion dollars. And there was a classic moment in this whole thing that you know we got called and they told us, "Hey, you know, we're announcing that SAP right now. We're announcing that SAP just acquired us for eight billion. They were about to go public like two days later. So SAP kind of come in at the last minute. And someone said to me, "What do you think?" And I said. Eight billion is incredibly cheap. I think that is a thirty billion dollar category opportunity in a fifty to sixty billion dollar uh, market. And they were like, "You're crazy, mate." I was like, "I'm not. I honestly believe, based on the problem they're solving and the scope of the problem, which of course was what kind of experience you as a company deliver to your employees, to your customers, through your products or brands. I mean, pretty much the motherload of what's important is now a top three problem at enterprises. Anyhow." What happened? Well, SAP and they did, it didn't work out because people were leaving because SAP's gross, not quite what Qualtrics gross was. So they spun them back out again and they went public for $27 billion, right? And what was that about? That was about category potential. It wasn't about multiples of revenue or EBITDA or any of that stuff. It was like, holy smokes, this problem is so big inside of enterprises I think this thing's going to be worth a lot of money, and I think they're going to generate a lot of revenue. And of course, they have, and history's, history's proven that one. And there's other ones that we can talk to as well. I think that's what's going on with this one. I think I'm going to buy on the day. If I can get them at 80 bucks, I'm going to be stoked. And, and I think, thank you for that. I, I think what a lot of people don't realize is for startups, for new companies, by definition, every company going public they are creating or trying to create a different future. They're not continuation of the past companies. They're have a different future happen companies. And so their value is based on the category potential and people's perception of their ability to monetize that potential. And, and, and the companies that are not designing and creating new categories, products and business models there are companies by definition that are betting on the past. So when you want to look historically and you say, okay, well, uh, you know, what's your growth rate normally? What's your margins normally? What are your earnings normally? What are your cash flows normally? And we can build a very simple financial model and bada bing, bada boom. And that's what those companies are valued at because they are extending the past companies. Companies that are designing a different future 
You either believe in that future or not. And the funny thing about it is it, they all look like geniuses in retrospect. You know, one of my favorite examples of this will always be Airbnb. So context is everything. So on Airbnb, when Brian first shows up and starts running around Silicon Valley, most venture capitalists look at it and go, who the fuck wants to rent their couch? And who, the, who would want to stay on the couch? Well, that's one lens. And then there's this whole other lens called a point of view called don't visit, don't be a tourist, be a local. Well, that changes everything, right? And tomato, tomato, uh, <laughs> a whole new way of doing this, right? And so, but it's that, it's that leap of faith on taking a chance on a different future that seems to get a lot of people caught up and a lot of people in the financial world caught up. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, you're absolutely right. It does. And look, it, it, for good reason, because some people get up and tell a story that's complete bullshit. And, you know, we got to better this or the carbon inulate is faster or we're going to get more margins or all that sort of stuff. And and I, you know, those those things just go by me. I'm not really I don't really pay attention to them, but many financial people do. But it's the ones that stand up and imagine, to your point, a different future and imagine a different way. And 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 how 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 bold is it? that RJ says, you know, we have to, we have to design a company from the ground up with a, with a mission to fundamentally change an industry. And he means the automotive industry and the petroleum industry and all of the other industries that to your point are in the backward rear vision mirror and don't like it. And I saw that there was a lawsuit from the oil industries against the government for putting, for, for putting, you know, sort of carbon free, you know, sort of energy creation on against them and all this sort of crap. And so, uh, how bold is it that he did that, you know, and didn't just stand up and say, I got a better, I got a better car. I mean, that's, that's what I love the most about that guy. The other thing I think from a category design and marketing perspective, that's really interesting is we've now started to see a different model for company building, which is long before you ship a product, you start building a community because you have a, a point of view that captures people's imagination and attention and you deputize them in this community, they become, you know, there's the, the, the great old line, if you want to sell Bibles, there's got to be Christians. Right. And so in that sense, uh, RJ's been manufacturing Christians, so to speak, way before he had a Bible to sell. Yeah. And that is an extraordinary thing. And he goes out and he does a giant deal with Bezos for, for Amazon trucks to get the party started and so forth and so on. And so there is this new model where if I'm a category designer and I have a compelling enough point of view around a problem that pe people care about or I can get them to care about. And I, how long has uh, RJ been uh, out publicly sort of evangelizing his, um, his point of view? Years. Years for sure. Right. You know, and the product itself showed up a couple of years ago, really. So maybe four years, three, four years, right? Least, and when did he least. start taking orders? Do you know, Al? Two and a half years ago. I was one of the first. Yeah. And so this goes against everything that most of us have been taught, right? Which is you don't market till you have a product. You have to launch the company, dun, 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 right? And uh, you sure as hell aren't going to be doing sales before you have a product. Right. And you're not going to be building community because you don't even have anything to sell yet. Well, uh, that's exactly what he's done here to 
pre-build the category. In other words, the category, if you say category design, one of the fundamental things it's about is about demand creation as opposed to demand capture. He's been creating demand for two plus years ahead of shipping his product and officially launching his company. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was, he was evangelizing this point of view well before he even had a product to show. And that's the power. And and that's your point is, and that's a little bit of where I, I also mentioned the sort of the brand thing. It's derivative of the category design for that reason is, is that you have to create the vision. You have to create this incredible problem in people's mind, anchor it so that our biases start to work towards it as opposed to against it. And that's what he's done. And that's what he's been doing for years. And then on top of that, that doesn't get you there. Just because you did that work doesn't guarantee you're going to be successful, right? And it's the point you were making before. You've also got to do the other pieces of the magic triangle, have a great product and have a great company. Like these three, three things have to go together. But you can also not, you know, there's so many companies that have done an incredible job on the product and it's been a flop because they didn't do the category design and most likely they didn't do company design either. So he's just done all three. He did it in the right order and it's manifesting in a way that's insanely powerful. Awesome. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap Al? Well, I'd like to say that, you know, the surf's been pretty good here in Santa Cruz and uh, <laughs> uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to let everyone know I've been doing some kiteboarding and kite surfing. And I'm really enjoying that. And, you know, for a guy that's, uh, not too bad for his age, as someone famously said to me. You know, you know, you're you're, you're a very good you're a very good looking man for for a guy your age. <laughs> yes, I do think that was what the statement was, and my my statement to everyone is: get out there and be adventurous. It is it is it is a great way of life. Well, it, it is pretty cool to watch you um, learn to kiteboard right now. I think that's. And I, as I've watched you learn to kiteboard, uh, uh, A, I'm stoked you're having a good time, and B, I won't be learning to kiteboard with you. It's just, <laughs> it's just, there's a lot of knowing north and south and east and west and right and left and that you have to have to do that. <laughs> yeah, and what I'd say about it, all of that's true, Chris. There's a kite thing, which is the source of power, and then there's a board thing that is you're riding that power, and then there's a wave thing that you're channeling that waves thing um but the the greatest thing about honestly is that being a kook again is so powerful uh, for us humans like i went and started doing that it took me eight months i'm a pretty quick learner on most athletic things it took me eight months to get it and that period where you are a kook and you have to be humble you have to learn you have to put in the time it's so powerful and and it's something I, i i'm a lifelong learner i love doing those sorts of things to test myself and move myself and develop myself and uh, for anyone out there who wants a wants a great challenge and has maybe done some sailing or some surfing i'd highly recommend starting it's a fun thing to do and the coolest thing is the guy my hero uh for kiteboarding his name's woody and woody is 91 years old and he's still kiteboarding and that's 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 the coolest thing when did he learn how old was he when he learned 60 60 and the guy yeah. who taught me was actually the one who taught woody you know and so a long long time ago it was like in the in the you know sort of turned into 90s kind of time frame late 90s i think is when he first started and uh and woody shows up and i was at in hood river and woody and a group of others who were between 75 and 85 were there all doing kiteboarding and it's, it's one of those sports that you can like skiing you can do forever because in that case skiing case gravity in this case wind is the source of power and all you have to do is finesse and 
you can do that until you're much older. It's cool. It's really cool. I love it. Well, I'm very, very stoked for you, Al. And I don't know why it took us so long to do this, but now that we've done it, will you will you come back sometime relatively soon? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And for those of you who don't know, Christopher and I do gym together at um, Paradigm here in Santa Cruz. <laughs> and he's actually a pretty good athlete. And he might not, he might sort of <laughs> not tell you that, but he's actually a pretty good guy. And I always sweat a lot more than he does in the workouts. <laughs> All right, Al, I love you. Thank you so much. And please come back soon. Love you too, brother. Well, there he is, my buddy, my dear friend, my brother from another mother, Al Ramadan. And of course, he is the co-author of Play Bigger and the co-founder of Play Bigger Advisors. Also wanted to let you know, uh, we don't have many guests on Lockhead on Marketing, as you probably know. But coming up soon, we do have another guest episode with one of my favorite people on planet Earth. She's a legendary author and PR executive named Dushka Zapata and her partner, Dan Rome, who's also a legendary author. And we have a riveting conversation about why presentations suck and what to do about it. That's coming up soon. All right, we would like to thank Al Ramadan. Play Bigger Advisors, check out playbigger.com today. Also, our friends at Atranet, building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over uh, 20 years. Check out atre.net. And don't forget to go to lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. You can now get a 20% discount on group orders of four or more at lockhead.com on Category Pirates. I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Don't forget to consult your uh, lawyer, doctor, shaman, mystic, and yoga instructor, and of course, category designer, before acting on any of today's information. I uh, also want to let you know your spouse called, and she said it was okay. You can go ahead and subscribe to Category Pirates. <laughs> also need to warn you that the creators of this podcast may have been consuming libations, and every episode does contain nuts. Um, we are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by the handsome and talented GM Simon. Um, and the thought I'll leave you with today comes from the great, the GOAT, Peter Drucker himself, who said, If you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. All right, that's it. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.